So based upon who Jesus is, his humanity, his deity, his suffering, his humility, his obedience to the point of death on the cross, Jesus, his victory over temptation, over sin, and over death, consider, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 3 of Hebrews, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. In the Greek language, that word for consider means to not just consider, but consider attentively. To fix one's eye or mind upon something. To understand. To pay particular attention. And what a key point for the church today. That the more we're fixed upon or our thoughts are fixed upon Jesus, the better our life will be. The opposite is true as well. I'm sure we probably have all discovered that in some way. For when your eyes are not fixed upon the Lord and your thoughts are allowed to run rampantly with the cares of this world, the worse off your life really is. Now, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to whom this letter is written, they were encouraged to fix their eyes upon Jesus. As the classical hymn, I think, would remind us today, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. With all of the things that are happening around you in the world, do not allow anything to remove your gaze from upon Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. What a great reminder. And we're only in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, holy brethren, holy brethren. What a call for the church to be holy as the Lord is holy. And through faith in Jesus, we all are partakers in the righteousness and the holiness of God's Son. This is important to note if you're taking notes. Through faith in Jesus, you're able to partake in the righteousness and the holiness of God's Son through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Sometimes, when you're going through what we call in our house, going through the wars, meaning you're just having a hard time, a lot of challenges, challenges of even everyday life, we forget that our Savior has saved us. We forget to what extent Jesus went to allow us our freedom from sin. It's so easy to get caught up in the affairs of this world. And I think even as we head into the seasons of Thanksgiving and Christmas, we find that we can get so stressed and so distracted and so overwhelmed. But yet, we see what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. In our study last week, we talked about the spiritual battle that's taking place behind the scenes and how every Christian is involved in the spiritual warfare. And maybe if you're here today and you've lost sight of Jesus, maybe if it's the case for some of you where you know you have wondered how you've drifted so far, what a reminder to turn your eyes upon Jesus again. 
Stop focusing on your problem or your situation. Turn your eyes upon the Lord. Consider him. You have to find yourself as a partaker of that great and spiritual calling that God has upon your life. We belong to an amazing family, the family of God. And sometimes it might be the case for some of you here, maybe watching online, that you've been gone from the family so long that you have forgotten what your family is all about. You've walked away from the Lord. You forget who you were in Christ. You thought that the world had more to offer than what God has already done for you. And if there was one thing that I could remind you of today, it would be consider once again who Jesus is. Pay particular attention to the Holy Spirit and what he would be speaking to you regarding your life and your calling and how that fits with your current situation in life. I don't feel like I am able to articulate clearly enough what I believe the Lord desires to do in your life and in this church. We've been praying that the Lord would stir up each individual in this church, stir them up in the Holy Spirit, light that fire to bring revival once again, to not allow the cares of this world to bring us down, but to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And here in verse 1, we see the members of the church, just like you and me today, are referred to as holy brethren and partakers of a heavenly calling. Do you know how how amazing this is? To be called a holy person, a holy woman, a holy man, and get that group of people together, and it's a holy family with a heavenly calling. I think often we forget and we don't realize that because of what Jesus did upon the cross, we are able to be called holy brothers and sisters. Do you realize today the calling upon your life is not one of earthly origin? It's one of the heavenlies. It's come from God for you. It's not like somebody down here drew up a little plan and said, here's your plan of action and good luck. When he says, you are holy brethren and you're partakers of a heavenly calling, this means that you are involved. You are involved with something that is higher than yourself, that is greater than you as an individual, and you are called to do something that you cannot do in your own strength. It's your calling. It's from heaven. And if your calling is from heaven, then I think we understand a little more fully what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 123, verse 1, where he says, Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. A heavenly calling causes the Christian man or woman's line of sight to be raised to where it should be, looking unto Jesus. Often the church and we as Christians, we find ourselves in such bad places when our eyes are not fixed upon the Lord. And it's so easy to do so. I've had it happen to me numbers of times. A number of times I, I've been in a place where I've been stressed or I, I feel like I've been up, into my, up to my eyes in problems or not knowing what to do. And it's so easy to be completely consumed by the challenge that you're facing. 
And then what happens when your eyes are no longer fixed upon Jesus? What happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens with me. You get discouraged. Hopelessness starts to sink in. Oh, I don't know if anything good's going to come from this. Oh, I think this is just, this is the end, Lord. This is the end. But then you're reminded. Somebody comes along and says, why are you not focused on the Lord? Do you not know who you are in Christ? Do you not realize that your calling is from the heavens, that God has a high calling upon your life? Do you not realize that because of what Jesus did on the cross, that he has forgiven you, he has cleansed you, and he's made you a part of a holy family? Do you not realize this? How could have I forgotten that? Of course. You know what's ironic is that as this letter is being written to the Christian Jews that are in Jerusalem, they are in the city of Jerusalem, and he's reminding them, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Because throughout history, the Jews that would actually travel to the city of Jerusalem, they would sing this song recorded for us in Psalm 121. Listen to this. It says, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. So the psalmist says that this is the song of ascent as you would travel as a pilgrim from far lands to the city of Jerusalem, God's holy city, they would say, well, does my help come from the hills? He asks rhetorically. No, he says, I will look to the Lord. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He will not allow you to stumble and he does not sleep on the job. Yet ironically, as I mentioned earlier, the Christians that were living in Jerusalem, they were already there. They were already in that place where they were in the city that those from around the world would travel to saying, raise your eyes to the heavens. Look once again to the Lord. He will not allow you to stumble and he's not asleep. But then they arrived to Jerusalem and they forgot all about the Lord. They forgot all about who Jesus was. Maybe you have experienced where you have walked through your trial. You have gotten through your difficult time. The time where you're white knuckling your faith. You know, Lord Jesus, please save me. And he saves you and he gets you through it. And then you forget who the Lord is. Your eyes are no longer focused on Jesus because when you were going through your problem, you had no other place to turn but the Lord. And so we see here the author telling them, really encouraging them to turn their eyes upon the Lord. The Lord is the one from whom their help comes. Their help comes from the one who made heaven and earth. And in our study of Hebrews, we know that to be who? Jesus. And his nature is not one that will allow you to stumble, nor would he be asleep on his watch. And so again, of the people, he says, holy brethren with a heavenly calling. That's how the people are described, the 
Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, but of Jesus, listen to what he says, the apostle and high priest. Consider the apostle, meaning not just messenger as that word means, but the messenger. Do you remember what we read in Hebrews chapter one, verse two, how it says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world. So Jesus personally delivered his own message of salvation to the world. You remember in Hebrews 1 verse 1, it says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, but this time around, God did not choose to send a delegate or an ambassador to deliver the message of salvation, but rather he came himself. He's the one that you should look to. Now, these Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem were to be contrasted with the wicked Jews that hated Jesus. The Jews that hated Jesus were wicked, and they rejected all the prophets that God sent previous. And they ultimately rejected God's son. In Matthew 21, I'll read it for you, but if you like to turn there, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 39. Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, this is Matthew 21, verse 34, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. This parable is speaking of how God sent his prophets to deliver a message to the people of Israel, and they time and time again rejected it. Finally, he says, they'll hear my son. But the same that rejected the Lord's prophets also rejected the son. The Jews that we're speaking of today were not of that group. They were partakers of a heavenly calling. They had placed their faith in Jesus and had received and received the messenger. And in so doing, they received the one who sent the messenger. As Jesus speaking to his disciples said in Matthew 10, 40, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me, or excuse me, receives me, receives him who sent me. And so it is true today that as you share your faith, As you let your light shine, those that receive what you have to say about Jesus will receive Jesus, and those who receive Jesus will receive him who sent Jesus. He's referred to as the apostle. Secondly, he's described as the high priest. Now, according to the law of Moses... Once a year, the high priest would enter into the temple, into the place called the Holy of Holies, only able to enter after he had purified himself. Now, the high priest, his job was to intercede 
on man's behalf to God and represent God to the people. It was a very sacred role, this role of the high priest. He was the mediator between a holy God and sinful man because God would not look upon sin. And if God would not look upon sin, then sinful man could not approach a holy God. And if you're a sinful person, then that indeed is a predicament. How can I be right with a holy God when my sin has separated me from him? Well, that's a great question to ask because then you go, enter Jesus here. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But according to the law of Moses, man cannot pass through the veil that separated them from the holy place where God dwelled. That place, as I mentioned, was called the Holy of Holies. And again, only the high priest once a year could enter. But after Jesus' death on the cross, when he said it is finished, as he gave up his spirit, paying the price for all sin, we read in Mark 15, verses 37 through 39, it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then, in verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so when the centurion who stood by there on that place called the place of the skull or Calvary or Golgotha, the centurion who stood opposite of Jesus saw that Jesus cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. But do you see the picture here? Jesus' death on the cross made forgiveness of sin possible. And so there in the temple, that huge veil I believe that it was at least 12 to 16 inches thick. Like, that's not like a curtain you've ever seen. It was a very, very thick piece of fabric. It was torn from top to bottom. It was basically saying, and you get the picture, that I am now, Jesus said, I am now removing the separation between holy God and sinful man by what I just did on the cross. Now, the whole world will have access through forgiveness of sin by faith in me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus again today. Look at what he has done for you. It was from the top to the bottom that veil was torn. Man could not do it. God did. And by no man's work, by no man's effort, could the barrier between sinful man and a holy God be removed. He's the high priest, the mediator, the interceder, the one that has granted you the pathway, and not only the pathway, but the entrance into heaven. In verse 2, it says, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. For this one, speaking of Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. So, what do we see here? Well, you look at the target audience. Jewish Christians. If you came out of Judaism, you would wrestle with how by grace you have been saved through faith and not of the works of the law. So let's look at who Jesus is. Jesus was faithful because he cannot deny himself. We see the work that Jesus did was completed. 
It is finished. But with the Jewish people and their culture, you know that Moses held such a place of honor and esteem that only a Jew living at that time would understand the significance of what we actually just read here in verse 2. The author of Hebrews just said that Jesus is of more honor and glory than Moses. And one of the major issues of the Jewish Christian that they would face would be, what do I do with the law of Moses? One of the major issues that plagued the early church in the Jewish community was those that taught that faith in Jesus was not enough, but one must also live according to the law of Moses. It's important for us to understand that Jesus did not do away with the law of Moses. He was the fulfillment of it. The law of Moses, though, was impossible to keep perfectly. Nobody was perfect. No, not one. And that fact remains the same today. There is no one righteous. No, not one. However, the law of Moses, as impossible as it was to keep perfectly, helped curb society's wickedness. It was meant to point you into this direction that would lead you to the Lord. It can never make you perfect before God. It actually showed you that you were not. The law pointed out things in our life, or in this case, in the Jew's life. The law pointed out two things particularly. One is it pointed out your sin. And the second thing it pointed out and what it was meant to do it pointed out your need for a savior, your need for forgiveness. Those were the two main things that the law pointed out to every individual. So if the law of Moses shows me that I have sinned and it shows me that I have a need for a savior, why then once I have found my savior, Jesus Christ, would I need to go back to that which pointed me to what I already have? Does that make sense? The law of Moses was meant to point me to Jesus. So now that I have found Jesus, I have put my faith in him. I have been forgiven of my sin. Why would I need to now go back to the law of Moses or to that which pointed me to where I already am? Example would be if you're driving on the highway and you've arrived at your destination. I don't need to go back and look at the signage that leads me to my final destination. It might have pointed me in the right direction as I was getting there, but once I have arrived, I no longer need that. It doesn't mean that those signs no longer exist. It doesn't mean that those signs didn't point you in the right direction. But what we're saying here through faith in Jesus is that the law of Moses was meant to point you to your Savior. So in Jerusalem, as you know already from our earlier studies, there, as this letter was written, there were a large number of Hebrew or Jewish Christians. But there was a very strong presence of Jewish law and tradition that needed to be separated from the faith found in Jesus when it pertains to righteousness and holiness before the Lord. The Christians in Jerusalem were seeking to obtain righteousness through the law of Moses while being made righteous by faith in Jesus. And as you can imagine, that would come with a whole host of stumbling blocks and problems and 
lead to a spiritually arrested state. The church, and you can even look around this morning, the church is a group of very diverse people from all different backgrounds, all different native tongues, different cultures. The church is a whole bunch of strangers that have put their faith in Jesus and now have found that they're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow members and citizens of the household of God, the kingdom of God. And so that's why we look at our church and we're like, wow, this church is a great cross-section of what the body of Christ looks like. But according to the law of Moses, for certain Jewish traditions, that if you were a Jew, you could not fellowship, hang out with somebody that was not a Jew or a Gentile. They would cause you to be unclean. That would be problematic in a church that would be comprised of all types of people from all different cultures and all different backgrounds. Paul wrote about this in Galatians 3, 28 through 29, where he says, Therefore, you are no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, in this day and age, it's important to note that Paul was not saying that that doesn't mean that you're no longer a Jew or you're no longer a Gentile or that you weren't born a man or born a woman. The point he's making is that you're actually all one in Christ. And so from a culture that would separate Jews from Gentiles and men from women, he says, now we're all one family of God through faith in Jesus. You are the true children. Because you belong to Christ, it says in Galatians 3.29, that you are the true children of Abraham. Abraham was a man of faith, and those who have faith in, in, in God are true children of Abraham. And it says you are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. The big picture, God's plan for salvation reaching every part of the world, giving every individual the opportunity to be forgiven of their sins. And so there were thousands, it is believed, of Christians that clung to the traditions of Judaism. And so he says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Pay attention to who he is. You're paying a lot of attention to who Moses is, but he who built Excuse me, he who uh, designed the house, he who built the house, is the one that all the glory and honor belongs to. And you can read along with me again in verse 2. Who is faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. He says Moses was faithful. Moses did what God had called him to do. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. So Moses says he's faithful in his house, but then it says Jesus built the house of Moses. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And so Jesus, who is counted as the Messiah, as God's son, as being worthy of more glory than Moses. In Philippians 2, verse 6, we read, Who being in the form of God, Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Jews, 
These were the wicked Jews, sought all the more to kill Jesus because he not only broke their traditions according to the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day knew exactly what Jesus was saying about himself. They knew exactly what he was declaring. He said that he is equal with God. Jesus created the world. Jesus created Moses. Jesus created the law to give to Moses, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. In John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. Now, the glory of the temple, if you remember Solomon's temple, if you even look at the temple of Jesus' day, the glory of the temple was an amazing one. Wow, what a, what a building. It was the most revered place in all, all the land for the Jews. But the glory of he who dwelled in the temple was greater than the building itself. The house of Moses. It was an amazing house. But he who built the house was of greater honor than that which was built. To continue in the law of Moses could be carried out to the extent that there would be those who worshipped and served the created thing instead of the creator. Isn't that interesting? Where so much emphasis for the early church, especially the Jewish Christians, would be upon Moses who was actually created by Jesus. But instead of having their attention fixed upon Jesus, their attention was fixed upon the created thing, Moses. It was always God's intent from the very beginning for the law of Moses to be used to have his people know him, but not to just stop at Moses. Some get to the law of Moses and they stop right there and they never go any further. Acts 7, verse 49, it says, speaking of the Lord, actually the Lord speaking, and this is being quoted by Stephen, it says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? All things I have created, the Lord says. I created Moses. I'm the one that gave him the law referred to as the law of Moses. The law of Moses that I gave to Moses was meant for the people of God, my people, to be pointed to me. It was never given to make anyone righteous. For by the law, no one shall be justified in the sight of God. It was meant to point out your need for a Savior that I was going to send, my only begotten Son. And there you would find grace and truth. And in verse 5 again, as Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a Son over his own house 
whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So again, I know I'm reiterating myself, but the law of Moses was meant to point out sin. It was, point, it was meant to point out your need for a savior. Jesus did not do away with the law. We should not leave this service today thinking the law of Moses is bad. No, it's not. God instituted it. God gave it to Moses, his faithful servant. But Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses, meaning the law of Moses was complete in him. It pointed your need for a savior. And so when Jesus came, the law of Moses was now fulfilled. We're going to point you to God, but you can't get there. We'll try to get you as close as we possibly can, but you're still going to be a ways off. But then Jesus arrived. God's son. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Sin always begins as an issue of the heart before it makes its way into the actions of our lives. The law of Moses only dealt with the superficial, the external. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. It doesn't make sense that Jesus who gave to the law or gave the law of Moses and spoke through the prophets, remember that God who in time past spoke to us through his prophets, I'm not going to undo what I've already said, the word of the Lord endures forever, but I will show you how everything that I spoke to you through my servants and even my servant Moses has culminated in me. I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he says in Matthew 5, 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. There will not be a dotting of an I or a crossing of a T that will be missing from the law of God. And he goes on to say, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, and this is the real kicker, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. If you lived in Jesus' day as just a common person, you would have now had your mouth drop, hit the floor, as you wondered who could possibly live more righteously according to the law of Moses than the Pharisees. And if the Pharisees can't get into heaven because of their adherence to the law of Moses, who then can even be saved? Well, that's a great question to ask. The Pharisees, they not only observed the law of Moses, but all of the extra man-made laws 
that were added on top of the law of Moses. But God's laws were always deeper than what you saw at face value because God always looks to the heart. We see this laid out perfectly in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where the Lord says the Lord doesn't see things the way that man sees them. People judge the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Pharisees prided themselves upon, well, I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. But Jesus said, you heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. That's one of the laws of Moses that you say you adhere to. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses because Jesus deals with the sinful nature of man's heart. In 5:21 and 22 of Matthew, it says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Have you hated somebody enough that you could kill them? or wish that they would die a painful death, then you're guilty of breaking the law of Moses in your heart. This was a spiritual issue. Moses was a great man. He was faithful to his calling. He was a testimony to those that would come after him, as it says in verse 5. But did you pick up on this? Look at what it says in verse 5. Moses was a faithful servant in the house. The Greek word for servant here can be translated an attendant in the household of God. He carried out the wishes of the master of the house. That's Moses. The one that you're looking to is an attendant, is an attendant in the house of God. And so as great as Moses was, he was a servant in the house of the Lord. This is to be contrasted with what the author says in verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house we are whose house we are of if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And so Jesus, the author is telling us very clearly here today, Jesus is the head of the house of Moses. He's the head of the house that Moses served in. And that also means, which is very cool for you and me today, that you and I belong to the same house as Moses did under the headship of Jesus if we have faith in Jesus. And so, logically now, it doesn't make sense for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to hold fast to something that they have moved on from. They no longer need a tutor to lead them to Christ. They've already received Christ. Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23 says, And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave to him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all 
in all. Jesus fills all in all. Moses pointed out or pointed to that which would fill all in all. Jesus fills all in all. Moses just pointed, pointed to Jesus. So the church, as hopefully we are today, is encouraged to hold fast our confidence and our hope in the Lord. As we rejoice in who Jesus is and what Jesus did in making us holy, making us partakers of this heavenly calling, the same heavenly calling that was given to Moses because we're in the same house. So church today, lift up your eyes and look into Jesus. No matter what you might have going on currently, we're reminded, fix your attention upon the Lord. You fix your attention upon yourself, you're opening, opening the door for depression, discouragement, hopelessness. So we're reminded once again of who Jesus is. We're reminded once again where our attention should be, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask, God, that you would please strengthen the body of Christ here and abroad. Lord, sometimes in life we uh, get up to bat and a curveball is thrown at us and we can have a swing and a miss. And we're left wondering, what do we do now? Didn't really plan for this. Don't really know what to do. May we look to you, Jesus. Give us direction. Give us wisdom. Lord, may we be reminded that this earth is not our home. We belong to a heavenly kingdom. We're passing through here. And as faithful servants, even as Moses was a faithful servant in the household of the Lord, may we be as well. Lord, I know that you have called this church. You planted this church. You created the church. Lord, you're the head of the church. And Lord, this church has gone through a lot of different things. And you have been faithful in every season. And so, Lord, I pray that as, Lord, this eighth year comes to a conclusion, this eighth year that really even in the Bible, the number eight signifying the number of new beginnings, Lord, we know that you have been preparing us this entire year for what is ahead. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to not be on the fence, but rather that we would be all in, all in, Lord, in our following you, Lord, in our service unto you, I pray that we would even go beyond what we think we're capable of doing. And so, Lord, help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look fully in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. May the Lord bless you today. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you the peace which surpasses all understanding. And may it guard your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. 